Welcome to the Defiant Spirit, a podcast about discovering meaning, purpose, and resilience in the most challenging, difficult, and darkest moments of our lives through what my teacher and mentor, Dr. Viktor Frankl, called the defiant power of the human spirit, that spirit that is within you, that spirit that is calling to you, that spirit that is you. I'm Dr. Baruch Halevi, and this is the Defiant Spirit, and now, on to our podcast. Welcome back to the Defiant Spirit, and I am joined, at least in my virtual studio, with my not only guests, because if you come to somebody's house, even virtual house, long enough, you're no longer a guest, sort of a a roommate, certainly a partner, and uh, that's Julie Mouse. Hi, Julie. Hi, thanks for having me. Having you back. So we're doing a lot together these days. For those who haven't heard, Julie is a mindfulness teacher as well as an Enneagram practitioner and many other things. But um, Julie and I have connected around a lot of things, not only the Enneagram, but also this defy your number understanding of it, that you're not a number, that you're so much more than that. And, um, you know, Julie and I really resonate over that. Julie brings so much to this conversation that, you know, I um, welcome and need. And part of that, and we're going to get into it today, is Julie's expertise around mindfulness. So, Julie, would you just share with us a little bit about um, what you do around the Enneagram and mindfulness and how you see this all playing out? So I um, have been teaching mindfulness and practices for over 10 years. And when I learned the Enneagram, I immediately saw the connection between the two of them because I feel like when I'm teaching people mindfulness and the course I teach is called mindfulness-based stress reduction. So it's about using the skill to catch ourselves in stress and realize we can do it differently. And one of the frustrations with people when they learn mindfulness is it's really hard. It's really hard to catch ourselves, to change patterns that we've had for 30, 40, 50 years and do it differently. And sometimes it makes it harder to learn mindfulness because you're just aware of how bad you are at it, right? And when I got involved with the Enneagram, I, it was very clear that the more self-awareness you have around how you behave under stress or what happens to you, the, your chances of catching yourself and being able to do that mindfulness practice you've learned and find a better way exponentially increases because you're, you can almost anticipate it. You're familiar. You're like, oh yeah, that's what I do. And so I, I've become really passionate about marrying the two of them together because they, the mindfulness helps you pause, but then the awareness helps you also helps you pause even more. Yeah, it's so important to not just turn this into a parlor trick or a cocktail party conversation, because that's what I sometimes hear the Enneagram. Hey, what's your type? Hey, what's your type? No, okay, mm-hmm. now what? As opposed to what you're describing, which is a, it's a world, it's a, it's a roadmap for life. How do you mm-hmm. move through the world? And if you're going to use a roadmap, right, you got it's got to be interactive, got to be able to engage it. And you do such a great job of giving us tools to embody the Enneagram, not just talk about it. Exactly. That's that's exactly where where my passion lies on learning to embody it. And for anybody who knows the Enneagram, which is probably quite a few people, um, I will not say Julie is an Enneagram nine, although you know I use that as shorthand, but she reacts and responds like a nine. 
Um, so she's going to be very reluctant to take my praise or step into the spotlight, but I'll, I'll encourage her because she really does bring so much to this. And so this is not uh, me teaching and her, you know, just listening. This is a dialogue we're going to go through over this co uh, course, but this series of podcasts where we're going to dialogue together and we're going to talk about over nine podcasts, all nine types. And we're going to do it around one of our first and shared connections, which is, um, the quote by Viktor Frankl, which Julie already referenced, between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space lies our power to choose our response. And in our response lies our growth and our happiness. And so in between stimulus, things happening to us and our choice, there's a space. And so what we're going to explore, right, starting right now is how do you expand that space? How do you expand the time the quality of experience between something happening to you and choosing either, well, I don't think we really choose to react, either reacting or defying the reaction and choosing our response. Anything you want to add to sort of the framework of what we're going to jump into with Enneagram One? Um, no, that's, I think you summed it up pretty well. Good. So let's get into Enneagram One. Now, what do you call the Enneagram one? Uh, well, perfectionist is my go-to, yeah. but um, reformer is also one I use a lot. And I know we're trying to kind of align our language and it's hard because there's so many different, you know, there's different vocabulary out there um, for the Enneagram, but what everybody agrees on is, you know, what the number represents. So whether it's a perfectionist, whether it's the reformer, uh, I've heard of other ones, it doesn't really matter what one calls this it's an energy. So we're going to get into the energy of a one. Here's what I see, and you'll you'll add to it. I think if I think of the sort of core ingredients of each type, and I have a brother who's a one, a son who's a one, my dad was a one, I think two of my grandparents were ones. So, you know, this one, this one is pretty close to me, even though I react and respond like an eight, I do have a lot of one in me. Where would you say one ranks in your profile? Well, I'm a nine, but I definitely wing one. If you're oh. familiar with wings out there, you tend to have energies of the numbers next to you. And one is next to the nine on the Enneagram. And you tend to carry some of those energies. And I have, um, so I have a lot of familiarity just personally with how a one feels. Yeah. I mean, there are types, I admit, I don't have a lot of experience or if I have experience, it's not really firsthand. This is not one of them, I think, for either of us. So I, I'm pretty confident I could say the ingredients of a one are perfection, hence the name perfectionist, but walking into a room, nine types walk into a bar, right? I, I created that little program and they see what's not perfect or what's not yet perfect. It's almost like it's not a choice. It's just a worldview of you look through a window and most people are just going to see through the window and a one's going to go to anything on the window that might obstruct the view. Mm -hmm. um, so this perfection, perfection in the world around them, in the people around them. But I would say most of all, I see this with ones that's really trying to perfect themselves. So that's top ingredient. What else would you add to this? Well, the, the other big one with for the one is that inner critic piece is that they're um, they may be critical of other people but they're 10 times more critical of themselves. And most ones, when you ask about the inner critic, they're very familiar with that voice in their head that's constantly 
telling him that it should be done better. It could be done better. You got to stick with this and kind of grips them. Yeah. Yes. I think that's a litmus test for anybody out there discovering their number. Because again, you don't need a test. You don't need Julie or myself to tell you. Only you can really identify and decide. But one of the, I think, true litmus tests of a one is like Julie, you're talking about, do I have an incessant inner critic? We all have an inner critic, but a one's inner critic is like on all day, every day, probably for as far back as they can remember. Now, it doesn't mean you can't defy it. It doesn't mean you can't turn it down. But when I identify with pieces of one, I don't identify with the incessant inner critic. Mm -hmm. What about you? Well, I'm pretty familiar with that inner critic being inset. Like I said, I have some of that one energy. Um, I'm more in denial of it because I'm a nine. I'm pretty good at pretending it's not there. Mm-hmm. But um, that's one of those things where you, the more awareness you have, you're like, oh, I, I, it's talking pretty loudly. I, I, I think it's everybody. But I do think if if you're a one and you're listening, you know what we, what Julie and I really don't know. And that is, um, I see this with my son, our relationship changed. I've talked about this a lot. When I discovered the Enneagram years back, and I started to embody this in our relationship that my job is not to make him better, it's to make him worse. Every (laughs) other type, make them better. I have three other kids, make them better. Him, he doesn't need me to add to his critic. And once I stopped adding to the critic and tried to help him um, forgive his himself and minimize the critic, our relationship just got so much better. Yeah, right. That's It's that all in the Enneagram, they say, treat other people how they want to be treated, not right. how you want to be treated. Oh, so yeah. true. So true. And that's yeah. one thing if you're in a relationship with the one. Um, I, I've counseled the one who has um, his, his sort of in, well, this is another core piece of a one, integrity, responsibility, integrity. Ones are the best people I know from a, they they want to be good. I think their mm-hmm. whole life they have longed to be the good boy or the good girl. Yeah, and I think that's why you can really hurt a one when you're getting upset with them for seeing what's wrong because mm. they're, the, the motivation is just to do it right. They want to help you see the better way to do it. And it's, you know, this is how you know you're inside your Enneagram type, I think. When, if somebody attacks that piece of you, you can't breathe. It's like the wind is knocked out of you. So for instance, this person, his integrity was called into question and it was devastating to him. Like there are other types that would have been hard, but for him, it's he couldn't function when his integrity was being attacked. And so one of the things I spoke to, you know, about the person who was attacking him, which you should never attack, but is, can you address his actions, his behavior, not his essence, who he is? Mm-hmm. Right. Because for one, that's that's what they care about more than anything. And it's what they're proud of too. They know they see things that other people can't see. And most ones I've met, maybe all ones I've met, if they could have done better, they would have done better. But they did the best they could in the moment with what they had, with what they knew, you know, where they were. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing I... Um, I think about with ones, if I'm on an airplane, if I'm going under the knife in surgery, the last thing I want to hear is the, the last, very last thing I want to hear coming out the mouth of the surgeon is don't got, don't worry. I got this. I'm an Enneagram one, <laughs> right? 
Like, yeah. They, they stud they did not cheat in med school. They <laughs> they got probably straight A's or they certainly worked their tail off. Right. These are people who are earnest, hardworking, and they want to be good. So that's just a driving um, energy of at least mm -hmm. everyone I've known. Yes, exactly. And I think sometimes if you're in relationship to a one with a one, you can forget to like thank them for all they do because they, like you said, they walk in the room, they see what's wrong, as opposed to getting irritated with them for seeing what's wrong all the time. Yeah, you know, you probably, <coughs> excuse me, don't need to point out what's wrong because they've already seen it and mm -hmm. it's not news to them. Unlike other types, I mean, a seven, a four, whoever, but not a one. And I think it just adds to their burden. And, and Julie's going to lead us through a guided meditation, not only for ones, but around the one energy. So even if you're not a one, we all have this one in us somewhere, rank ordered. And, um, but we all know people who are ones. So, but one of the things I see with, at least most of the ones I know is there's a rigidity even manifest in their physical, in their posture, in their, the way they carry themselves. Have you seen that? Oh yeah. I think that that's characteristic of one, a, a one person, how I kind of tend to know that they're one is they can kind of sit a little bit taller, their spine a little straighter. You can feel a tightness almost inside them. Um, let's talk about that because they're part of the, um, body, action, gut, center. There's three triads for anybody listening. And um, the top of the Enneagram is eight, nine, and one. And so this is the, the, the action, gut, instinctual types. And so each one does a little different thing with it. So I as an eight overexpress my instincts, my action. I, I tend to do too much. Um, nines, well, Julie, what do nines do with that stuff? <laughs> well, nines pretend they don't have it. <laughs> They the least action they, type and then yet they're action. Yeah. Yeah. So they tend to well completely underexpress, but the, to the point where they seem like they're checking out and not paying attention. Yeah. So so eights are an outward energy and nines are a conflicted or a going away from, and ones are inward, repressed, pushed down. And I, at least my experience, and you tell me because you're a nine, my experience of nines and ones is that, and oftentimes it's a revolving around anger. That's what eight, nines, and ones are all primary. We're, we're dealing, everybody deals with it, but eight, nines, and ones are really close to anger. Eights overexpress anger. Nines tend to not know they're angry or go away from it. And ones, you can feel that repression, that pushing it down. Mm -hmm. So on the surface, maybe they're coming across like there's no anger, but I think usually everybody around them knows they're angry. Yeah, you can almost feel it, but they don't think it's okay to express that anger. So they push it down and it can kind of um, come out sideways or you can feel that sense because it takes a lot of work to push that anger down instead of learning to manage it. And maybe this is a good place to dive into the one in reaction versus in response. Yeah. Well, you, you brought it up. So you take us down that path. What is a one in reaction? Yeah. So, because I see that um, for a one, if they can feel that tightness or that pushing down that energy in their body, it takes a lot of energy to do that. And I've talked to ones who they describe it like a, like a buzzing and electricity in their body because they're using so much energy. If they're 
if they notice that in their body, they can pause and pay attention to it and not go into this reaction, which might be to say something completely different or say something, well, either they say something that's a little harsh or the words come out of their mouth, their anger, they can't hold it in, or they are working so hard to hold it in, what comes out of their mouth, they think it's nice, but everyone can feel that they're angry. Right, because you know they've gone through 30 iterations of changing and softening, and it's yes. still too spicy. Yes, exactly. So in reaction, and I think uh, one, it's very um, palpable. They can feel this energy that they're working at to keep it at bay. And if they act in the world with that energy in their body, it's not going to be who they want to be. And they're trying so hard not to because they don't think it's okay, which, you know, I have a lot of compassion for that. They're trying not to, and then it comes out sideways. But in response, which is different, if I think if a one can stay in that space, between stimulus and response, if they can stay with that energy, they can bring their attention to just feeling that buzzing and wait till it subsides. And um, a one friend of mine described it as, instead of this tightness and this buzzing and this electricity, all of a sudden it feels like a breeze could go through her, yeah. or it feels like there's a balloon in her belly. Like it feels like there's expansiveness. And when that happens, she can, what, what, the way she acts in the world then is the way she is hoping to be in the world, a sense of calm, expressing with care behind it instead of with judgment, just kind of knowing instead of questioning what she's doing. And there's a sense of ease for her. Um, yes. And another way to respond isn't just ease, because if you, I'm going to rattle off some of these people, I think that are, if not one, certainly embody the one um, Nelson Mandela, Mahatma Gandhi. Um, there, I mean, there's just some Michelle Obama. There's some big personality, Hillary Clinton. These are these are movers and shakers. They're change agents. If and when they learn how to harness the fire, you know, Nelson yeah. Mandela or Gandhi. These, these aren't like wallflowers. Like these were these were fiery individuals who harness the fire because fire is not good or bad. It can be destructive or constructive, depending on if we have some control over it. And so ones have to learn how to harness the fire. My teacher, Abraham Joshua Heschel, called it righteous indignation, right? Mm -hmm. Fighting the fight with right. That's not anger. That's a harnessed anger for a purpose. And I know ones need a purpose. They're purpose-driven folks. And so like when I'm working with my son, helping him get back into his purpose, helping him get back into his anger to harness it, that energy to use it, um, to express mm -hmm. it as opposed to yeah. express it. So this is the work. Yeah. Of the it comes from this beautiful, genuine expression of what they see to be right, as opposed to you can feel them pushing it down and they're just going to tell you if like their teeth gritted. Yes. Yes. And trusting that, you know, it can and can and should come out. There's this lack of trust, which interesting too, is I've thought about this because mm. I have a wife who's a four and a son who's a one. They're, they share a line. Those you can see behind me, there's a one and a four, almost exact opposite. Whereas fours reactive will spew. They'll just spew emotion. Ones will tighten up and clench. It's where Freud gets the anal retentive. It's a, it's a control. 
right? Mm-hmm. Holding, or with, withdrawing, with, retracting. So there's yin and yang, where one is too much and one is too repressed. Well, and I love that you said the word trust. Like when a one learns to trust that what they see is actually a good thing and that energy needs to be brought out to the world. And if they can harness, like you said, the energy, that it it is okay to bring that out as opposed to shoving it down. It's not even only okay. It's, it's denying the world a gift when a one mm-hmm. doesn't share it in a constructive way. Because they're again, they're they're by definition they're change agents. They're you yeah. know in Kabbalah we call it tikkun olam. It's called perfecting the broken world. Like that's the mission of a human being. Well, ones are just naturally built for perfecting a broken world if they don't succumb to the overwhelm and the pain of all the brokenness. Yeah. So right. hard for them. Right, because if they do, they'll just like just shove it all down and say like the world's not ready for me. Yeah. And I'll take my ball and I'll go home and I'll, you know, and it's just, you can feel this withdrawing energy. Ones are a withdrawing type if they're not conscientious, which is why sometimes I mistype in my conversations with somebody one in five. Um, ones and fives can look very similar on the surface. Mm-hmm. What's, you know, their motivation, as you know, is totally different. Mm-hmm. Right. The, the ones being to be right and the fives um, being to have knowledge. But can we talk for a second about the ones because um, we're talking in response and the ones line to seven, because uh, my friends who are ones, I have this image of each of them when they're in their seven. And it's like that what you're describing of that ability to let go of the suppressing of the anger and just be. And I know they call the virtue of the one serenity. And I, I see that in my one friends when they're in their seven space, there's just this, I, I actually, I picture them with a smile on their face and this just like, and a more relaxed body posture, um, just really being, being in this calm space where they can say what they're thinking without being afraid that it's, that it's too angry or that someone's going to get upset with them. Yeah. So, you know, you're referring to the line between one and seven for anybody looking, at least if not, you can see the Enneagram for yourself. But that's um, you're right. It's their security or their um, going against the arrow back to their childhood. Sometimes it's called the childhood point. And there's this freedom, this mm-hmm. lightness, this childhood play. You know, it's Peter Pan, the boy that never wants to grow up. This mm-hmm. And for one to get back to that really light place is so refreshing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like when they're in that space, that gift to the world you talked about comes out more freely. Totally. Um, there's nobody better to take take with you on a vacation than a healthy one because they planned it and then they can enjoy it. Right? Yeah. And everything's taken care of. And now they'll have fun. I see this with my son and some other ones in my life. Now, if they're unhealthy, then they can turn the vacation into an imperfection, a you know, study in imperfection, right? Yeah, right. So they got to go back to that seven to really get sweet and innocent and just carefree. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then they can come back to that one and be in a healthy place, sort of like after a vacation. And then they can go down into that four, which is a more depth, right, of quality of, you know, emotion. And ones are an interesting type because if you look at the lines, they're a gut type. But they have a natural connection to the head space seven, and they have a natural connection to the heart space four. Not all types have that. 
And mm-hmm. so I think ones are really set up for success when they can learn to respond because they're a, they're they could be they can be a well balanced human being. Correct. Yeah. And what I what I was asking a friend of mine um, before this podcast about how she how she expands her space, like how she as a one keeps herself from you know reacting, putting her foot in her mouth, or being too angry, and she said that she that that pause that stopping herself and being patient like i need to not just pause when i'm feeling angry but really give it some time and some time might mean i need to step away and just let my let myself settle down or doing something like yoga or a walk or something intensely physical that helps her bring it bring it down and she goes and then she was the one that explains the the belt, the feeling of the balloon in her belly. When I feel that, then I know that I am thinking more clearly. Then I know that I'm outside of the spinning, trying to do it right and can be in a response type of space where I'm more uh, composed. Makes perfect sense. So maybe that's a good you know, segue into the experience of a one shifting from reaction to response by expanding that space and, you know, do you think this would be a good time to head into it? Sure, sure, yeah. So I really, um, I really believe that the way to get to for every type to get to more responding to situations to our our stimulus as opposed to a reaction, our habitual reaction, is that space. And what we do in that space is what determines whether we'll go into a reaction or response because we can take a pause and just spin in our head and make ourselves more crazy but what do you do in that pause so you notice for one a lot of times um, it's anger that they can recognize and you notice it and then i'm going to guide you through a practice that maybe you could do when you notice that you're angry knowing that anger is um, what they call the vice or your grip that causes you to to go into reaction So we'll do a little practice and I'll ask you to think of something that maybe you're angry about and we'll see if we can come into our bodies and if that helps you connect with what's happening in that space. That sounds great. And and so to to formally begin, I'm going to just recite again that um, quote from Frankel because, you know, just to let our listeners into the know, what I'm going to do is I'm going to cut this, that from this podcast. And I'll also make it an additional download for anybody who's listening, because that way you can return to it again and again, use it at night or whatever. So, so um, if you're listening to us, please keep listening. We're going to go right into it, but we're going to start right now. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space lies our power to choose our response. And in our response lies our growth and our happiness. And this is expanding the space for Enneagram One, the reformer. Let's start by taking two deeper than normal breaths and put your attention on your shoulders softening back and down as you exhale. And then bring your attention to the bottom of your feet Noticing sensation, so maybe temperature, contact with the floor, maybe tingling at your toes. See if you can rest your attention on the sensations in your feet. 
and notice if the attention gets pulled up to your mind, to thoughts or distractions around you. That's just your opportunity to practice bringing your attention back to your body. So coming back to your feet each time that happens. Noticing the ball, the arch, the heel, the top of the foot, the feel of your shoe or the floor. And then as you're ready, shift your awareness to your hands. Same thing, just noticing sensations in your hands, the contact with your legs, maybe pulsing at the fingertips, maybe the sense of temperature, the space between your fingers. So using this curious awareness of sensation as the anchor for your attention. And now shifting your attention from the hands to your breath. So noticing your breath from the moment the air enters in the nostrils, following it with your awareness, the pause, and then following with your attention, the exhale, and the pause again. And then bringing your attention deep into your belly and noticing your breath here. So the belly expanding outward as you breathe in and softening as you breathe out. Just like with the hands and feet, notice when the mind travels to thoughts or distractions, that's just your chance to practice bringing your attention back. Get curious about what sensations you notice here as you breathe. Now bring to mind something that you're angry about, something that upset you, something it shouldn't be that way. There's no right or wrong situation, just something that upsets you. Notice how the energy shifted from your belly up into your head as you think about it. Maybe picture the scene where it happened or the person, the situation. And now bring your attention back to your torso area and see if you can notice any sensation in your body as a result of those thoughts. Maybe there's a tightness in your gut, 
if you're a one, maybe you actually feel that suppressing of energy, suppressing of the anger. Maybe there's a buzzing electric feeling, tightness in the chest or throat. Just explore for you, where are all these thoughts landing in your body? Not trying to change them, not trying to resist them, trying to learn how your body responds. And almost bringing this loving awareness to you're okay with the fact that you're feeling this way. You're actually loving what is the reality of how your body reacts to those thoughts. And when your attention gets pulled back into thoughts, which often happens when we're thinking of stressful things, trying to solve it. See if you can, just like you did with your hands and feet, see if you can bring your attention back to the sensation in your body, that loving awareness of how your body's reacting to the thoughts. Emotion usually wants to either increase in intensity or decrease in intensity or shift to another emotion or change to another spot in the body. Just notice if any of that is happening. Continually bringing that loving awareness back. Nothing to do about it right now other than just being with yourself as you are. And you're more than welcome to pause this meditation if you're listening to the recorded version and just sit with that emotion for a while. And when you feel that that intensity feels lighter or it feels like there's more space there, it's not quite as intense, shift your attention to your breath. So back to maybe the feeling of your belly rising and falling. Shifting that focus back to just Noticing your in-breath, noticing the pause, noticing the out-breath and the pause again. And then as you're ready, you can relax your posture. Maybe Open your eyes if they are closed. And before we jump right back in, maybe just reflect on what people noticed um, at the end of that practice, what you noticed in your body. 
because I think those things that come up when we do a practice like that are, if we get to know them better, they can signal us that we need to pause. They can signal us that, ooh, I need space. I need some time before I act in the world so that I can bring that, that virtue of serenity out, which will just naturally come out if you've taken that time, if you've given yourself the time to be with that anger, be with your body's response, your body will naturally find that space where you can act in response. Such a, such a powerful meditation for ones, for you know anybody who's um, grappling with the one energy, which is in all of us. And so, um, you know, I'll just say to ones, be gentle. You didn't do it perfectly because perfect doesn't exist. Right. And I think it's such an important practice, mindfulness practice to not weaponize as ones um, and turning it into yet another exercise of imperfection or failure. Yeah, right. Right. Rather just be with it as it is, because if you do, your best self will just come out. You don't have to work on perfection. That's what the ones have forgotten. Right. That they already are perfect. And um, that there's you know, this is a deeper conversation, but imperfection by definition is contained within perfection. Perfection means everything. So imperfection is a necessary part of perfection. And so learning how to embrace imperfection as a pathway to the true perfection. Um, how about just to end with a couple tools for ones, in addition to that beautiful mindfulness meditation, I'll throw out a tool that I really think helps ones. I've seen it is body work. Um, when ones go to body practitioners, like, you know, massage is a simple one. Um, I've seen that they get in touch with their body. They get, um, they loosen up some of that tension in those muscles. So ones, if you're listening, I think that that's a great tool for anybody, but especially a one. Any Anything come to mind on your end? On uh, tools for one is for um, one. stop... Uh, you can't change what you see. You can't change that you always see what's wrong, but you totally can change what you do about what you see, how you act when you see those things. Um, also great. And I'll, I'll end with one more. And that is um, that I think my wife says about emotion, better out than in, which sounds like a four. Um, but I think for a one, a purging process. And so one way to do that, I, when I work with one clients is either to have them write an angry letter that they just would never write and then burn it. Don't do it on email, oh. you might <laughs> but burn it, write and burn or go out into the woods. This was a practice in the north of Israel in the, in the forest. The mystics would go out and you'd hear them screaming at midnight They'd be yelling, Abba, which means daddy. And it was like, you know, they're crying out to God. So whatever that word is or whatever, go out into the woods and scream. Um, the scream yeah. is a really good practice. Now, the ones who are looking at me or listening to me right now going, no way in hell be am I doing that. But it's a very profound practice. Well, and I like I said earlier to the um, how I have these friends that I picture in their seventh space like remembering to do those things, you know, when I talk to them about, they, they, the ones seem to really know those things that put them in that space yeah. and to make sure that they're doing that enough to counter the, the constant inner critic. They, the reality is they need to do those things to counter that. 
So if um, you're a one out there, if you're not a one out there and you want to get a hold of Julie MindfulMouse.com, mm-hmm. M-A-U-S. Yes, um, M-A-U-S. M-A-U-S. Um, or you can find her also now, I'm very proud to say, it's like proudly served Starbucks coffee, proudly served <laughs> Julie Mouse over at Defiance Spirit where you'll find her under the business section as Julie and I and our friend Katie are bringing the Enneagram to not only individuals, but also to organizations and businesses. So if you'd like to learn more about her, jump over to either of those places, defiantspirit.org or mindfulmouse.com. And until the next time, defy your number and live your spirit. Thank you so much, Julie. Thank you for having me, Dean. Spirit.org. Until then, take back your power and live your defiant spirit.